Learn Persian with Chai in Conversation. Growing Up Iruni interview with Navid Mahdabiyan. Salam and welcome to this Growing Up interview with Navid Mahdabiyan, a cartoonist and writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker since 2018. He is the author and illustrator for the graphic memoir, This Country, Searching for Home in Very Rural America, which is what we talked about in this interview. We discussed his cultural identity growing up and what in the world led him to live for three years in a tiny, tiny, tiny town in Idaho during the peak of Trump era. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him and hope you enjoy this interview with Navid. Uh, Navid Mahdavian, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we tried to do this a couple weeks ago and uh, we were having technical difficulties, but on the last time we spoke, I did this beautiful monologue about mm-hmm. how much I enjoyed reading the book because I <laughs> just come off of the experience. But don't worry, I haven't forgotten. Uh, Navid is the author of This Country, coming out September 12th, which is when this podcast will be released. But I had a wonderful experience with a pre-released copy of this book where I just could not put it down. And if you haven't experienced that in a while when you just get lost in a book, I highly recommend it. So thank you so much for writing this wonderful novel. Yeah, thank you for reading it. I recommend, actually, for everyone to read this book before listening to this discussion, because I'm going to try to ask for some of the questions that came up while I was reading it and after I had read it, because there's a lot of questions that come up. Uh, But first of all, can you kind of explain, give us a little uh, synopsis of what this book is about and why you wrote it? The book is about the three years I spent in super-duper rural Idaho. Trump had just been elected. It's 2016. I was living in the Bay Area with uh, my wife, Emily, and we decided to move to very rural Idaho. The nearest town was 500 people, 20 minutes away. And there was the the romantic sort of vision that we had of moving to rural Idaho. But then there was also the practicality. San Francisco is very expensive. Land in Idaho is not surprisingly very cheap. Um, and so we were able to build a tiny house, own six acres and pursue the arts. Which this was pre pre pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so, so I was doing this before it was, before it was cool. Um, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, so the book is about the three years that we spent there from 2016 to 2019. Okay. Wonderful. And a lot of the book goes into about your background. You're Iranian. Mm -hmm. You have a very Iranian look and how the people there you know, this is Trump country, like you said, how they reacted to you, how, you know, you made friends there, how, what the conversations were like. So a lot of that goes in the book. And one thing that we talked about last time is that in the book, the entire time you look as you do now with this big beard and you look very Iranian, but you'd (laughs) mentioned that you started off that trip actually without a beard. Can you talk about that transformation a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, there was the full mountain man transformation. The three years that I was there, move to the mountains, grow the mountain man beard. And for the, 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 the purpose of the book, I could have used that to show that growth. But I think in graphic novels, it helps to have continuity. You know, that's the Navid avatar. And so having 
him start with a beard and end with a beard made sense on a practical level. But I think to what you're pointing to there, it's also one of the things that I talk about, right? This Iranian feature, this Middle Eastern marker that um, I always knew I had, but it wasn't until I moved to a place where I was a minority, I experienced being a minority for the first time, and where those features became sort of pronounced and I had to reckon with them. So now let's go into the context in which you wrote the book. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in the, the 305, Miami, Florida. Uh, lived there for 23 years and then lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for my 20s. Okay. And what was your family's kind of immigration story? I think like lots of Iranians, they moved to the United States in 1978 in the midst of the revolution, but they didn't know that a revolution was happening. So their plan was to come for my my, my father's college education and then to go back. And when my mom came in July of 1978, her plans were to go back for her birthday that year. So she didn't say like a proper goodbye to her friends. It was like, I'll be back in a few months. Wow. And then she ended up coming back 10 years later for the first time. Um, which I'm sure is the oh experience that, yeah, I'm sure that that's the experience that lots of Iranian had it during the the period. And initially, they moved to Oklahoma, where my dad was attending college to Tulsa, and they were there for about a year. And I think wisely made the decision to to move to Miami, where they found an Iranian community, all engineering students at the University of Miami, and that's the community I was born into. Okay, so then in Oklahoma, what was their experience? Did they, it was right before the revolution. Was there still a lot of like racism or how was there? No, I think. Did they feel otherized? They, yeah, I think they had it because it was before the revolution. I think that they had the normal growing pains of moving to a new place, not being fluent in the language, looking slightly different than everybody else. But it was only after the revolution that there was, um, I think, the more overt racism. And when they moved to Miami, they heard from friends who had stayed back about assaults on Iranians who were still there after the revolution. But by that time, they were in Miami and they had their more diverse bubble. And you have a sister, is that right? Yeah, my sister was born a year after they moved to the States in Miami and I was born six years later in 1985. Okay, so then what was your experience with Iranian culture growing up in Miami? Like, did y'all have a community and what language were you speaking in the household? Yeah, we had a, a, a pretty tight-knit community. My father, it was his friends that he met in engineering school, so they were all engineering students and they ended up all having kids. So I had this very big community of Iranians and Iranian-Americans who on the weekends I would see, and during the week it was, I was sort of like in American mode and then weekends were Iranian mode. Dorud everyone, Leila here with a quick message. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it, I highly encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. In addition to giving you updates about our interviews, we send out a weekly email where we talk about Iranian culture and the Persian language. The emails are short and sweet and just give you a few ideas to ponder and inspire you on your learning journey. You can sign up for that and find out a lot more about us on our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Now, back to the interview. But growing up, funny enough, 
my my parents i think now mostly speak english to one another so my yeah my farsi is it's pretty good not fluent but my sister is fluent and i think that among students among other kids who i grew up with it's a similar experience where the eldest kids fluent and then there's a slight sort of gradient gradation of falling off of fluency but Miami's pretty diverse, right? And there's yeah. a lot of like different ethnicities. So it wasn't yeah. ever like you felt really out of place no matter no. what you were. Is that right? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like Miami, it's it's very lots of Latinos and Central Americans, South Americans, Caribbeans. So even still being Iranian, particularly I think after 9-11, that was when I was in 11th grade. There was, I think, some of that experience that all Middle Eastern Americans had. But yeah, for the most part, it's not something that stuck out because my groups of friends were very diverse and it was the same thing in the Bay Area. And it was only until I went to Idaho where I experienced for the first yeah. time, it's like, oh, this is what being a minority you know, feels like. Yeah. So what was that like? Like when you would step into a place, there's a bar that you go to a lot in the book, like when you would step into there, you would feel it or how? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, there, the vibe. yeah I, I think at the on, on a daily basis, there was just like there were the looks and it's hard to know if the stairs that went on too long were because was because of my complexion or if it's just because small towns, everybody knows you. And if you if I haven't seen you before, I'm going to wonder who you are. But then there were the more pointed questions like you're not a Muslim, are you? Which were definitely because of the complexion <laughs> of my of my skin. Um, and almost immediately off the bat, there's a scene in the book we're there and our first encounter with the people who live there are neighbors who come over they have wine glasses very friendly these neighbors are about a mile away but they come over onto the property with the wine introduce themselves and they immediately know who we are because in small towns everybody already knows who you are and they said that they had been debating where my name was from so you know from the get go right my my background is a point of conversation and speculation and thankfully right. they as one of them says when I said when I finally say that my background is Iranian, one of them says, "Oh, well, that's okay." <laughs> so, <laughs> um, just well, thank you. Uh, and I've often yeah. wondered what answer I could have given that would not have have been okay. But I think that was sort of my experience of being there, where everybody was very welcoming, but there was that push and pull of we're seeing you in a certain way and we're okay with it usually. But that's definitely the first right. way that we're. We're, we're seeing. And was there a contrast with the way they would respond to your wife versus you? Or were y'all just kind of lumped together? In a... I, I, I think we were lumped together, but I definitely did for the first time experience. So my wife, Emily, is white American. And it was the first time where I experienced how I was being perceived in relation to her. Like when we were ordering at the burger shop, like I, I'd ask myself, am I speaking too much? Should I should I be ordering like did I just order for her? Or are they going to think I'm the sort of domineering Muslim oh my man? Gosh. And so there are just these ways of being that I had never considered until I was aware of the way that I was being perceived. And so I did sort of try to recede when we were out with with Emily. But then there also were times where I would get angry about it. And sometimes it was just things I'm sure that was in my in my mind. I was imagining things. But I'd walk around the grocery store. Emily, she's a white American, but she can speak Farsi. And so I would very loudly speak Farsi in the aisles of the grocery store in order, you know, like, I am Iranian American. This is a language I speak. And 
you know, I don't care. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wait, hold on. She can speak Persian? I didn't <laughs> know that. How does how does that like fluently? No, she'll argue that she can speak better than than me but she she she, she wow. can't she can she can read better than i can but she, it's something that she picked up before how did that happen she just got interested in persian poetry when she was in college what? and then started taking farsi classes and then we met so it's completely coincidental that i am iranian american and she speaks farsi no way yeah yeah oh my yeah. gosh so does she know more poetry than you do <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know no poetry, so she she definitely knows more more wow. poetry than I do. Yeah. That's wild because you're saying your parents at this point even to each other speak English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but you'll have a daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, do what is your language with her? Like, do you does she speak Farsi yeah, to her or? So, so, so after the book, a lot of the comics that I've been writing have been more centered around my identity and a lot yes. of that was was driven by having a child and i think lots of people that's their experience i have a kid and then you reflect on like who am i you know like where do i fit in and i i i had to deal with the fact that so much of the culture that i grew up with is sort of it's it's contextualized to my childhood to my parents home and I had to figure out, well, if I'm going to raise my daughter to have this Iranian identity, um, what are the things that I'm going to try to sort of incorporate into my day-to-day -day life that maybe I, I wasn't incorporating before? And so Farsi is one of those things where, you know, the idea was I was going to speak Farsi exclusively, Emily was going to speak English exclusively, but then that's really exhausting when you're not fluent. And so at the beginning, her first words were, Farsi, and she at one point knew more Farsi than she did English. But at this point, that's completely just fallen away. And there's still a few words that she only knows in in Farsi, like stroller. She says Kaliska, but there's 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 only like one or two words that are like that. And I and I'm trying to sort of stall when that to prevent that complete falling off. But I'm hopefully going to have her in some classes soon and and i've been speaking to her more in farsi but it's difficult because now i feel like i'm experiencing with her what i experienced with myself where like there's just so much catching up to do but at least i had the basis of my first language being farsi where for her her first language is english right so then i i feel like this last year has been very you know big for people wanting to feel more like with the, all the oh, protests totally. happening in Iran, people feeling more connected to their identity. But for you, it probably started before with your experience in Idaho. Is that right? Like, did that make you more connected to your Iranian culture somehow? Because yeah, you mean, felt like an other? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, because I, I think in any situation like that, you reflect on who you are. And and I also think that th that experience of moving to this, even though it was in the United States, it still felt foreign. Um, there was some, I think, reflection that I had to do on my parents' experience of moving to the United States. And although, I mean, the experience obviously was was very, I'm not saying that my experience of moving to Idaho was the same as being in exile in America and, you know, losing the country you were, um, you were born into. But I did do some of that reflecting. And, and I think I appreciated for the first time what my parents went through, what they gave up and what they did for 
my my sister and me and that was driven by the move to idaho and then by having having a child of my own absolutely i thought that was one of the most like heart-wrenching parts of the the book <laughs> when you when you talk about that i that was yeah. such an interesting connection to make yeah 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 what's the journey been from like the idaho experience to like the revolution like how has your identity been evolving over the past few years yeah i mean i think i i think there's the experience of existing on a a periphery and i have a a comic that i did to the for the new yorker about this called persia in the periphery where not to sort of just say what the comic says but like in college i studied the classics and persia exists in the classic world ancient greece and rome on the the physically on the periphery and culturally it like bounds the the sort of western world there's constant conflict with them and you always read allusions to them but it's never from their perspective and then growing up it was sort of similar the stories of iran were secondhand it existed on the periphery now iran i i wrote a comic for the new yorker called persia in the periphery in which i start with my experience of being in college as a classic student where I studied ancient Greek and ancient Rome, where Persia exists on the periphery. They're, they physically, literally bound, right? The, the, the east to the west is Persia. You can't talk about Greek history without Persian history, but they're always it's always from the Greek perspective. And so there's always this like voice that's missing, right? Like the, the, the Persian voice. And then as a growing up in Miami with parents who are Iranian exiles, there was also this experience of Iran being on the, the the periphery of our experience, not being able to go there, having secondhand stories, my parents telling me stories of of Iran. And I think that like for many people, the the revolution that's happening right now has brought Iran from the periphery into the into the foreground. So it was the the first time that in Salt Lake City, where I live now, where I met other Iranians was when my daughter and I went to a protest that was was happening there. And it was this, like, this, 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 my heart swelled to hear in Salt Lake City, Farsi being spoken, people who sound just like, you know, my, my grandparents when I was a kid, my parents' friends growing up. And it was the first time that my daughter had an opportunity to be surrounded, other than, like, my parents and my sister, to just be surrounded by many people who are speaking Farsi and who are interacting with her in the way that people interacted with me. So I I think that that has done more for both my and my daughter's sort of connection with our our Persian identities than what had happened in the the first few years of her life. Wow, that's so fascinating. And yeah, we were talking a little bit before this about how there's just so many Iranians in the diaspora and we're, I I feel like we're very good at assimilating and, you know, doing good work. And everyone's kind of been quietly doing this good work, you know, developing our skills. And all of a sudden, this thing happened that, like, put us all together. And there's, it feels like there's this very supportive community of Iranians now that are kind of finding each other. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, I, I had mentioned that as, as an artist, as a New Yorker cartoonist who doesn't live in New York, that community is there. And for the first time, it feels like, oh, well, this is a community that I belong to, a community of Iranian and Iranian American artists and we support one another and we share each other's work and our it's it's like oh that's my experience that you're expressing and I hope that you know in the work that I'm doing I'm capturing some of your experience too and having this continual back and forth conversation 
about what it means to be an Iranian and an Iranian American in 2023. Absolutely. And another thing that we mentioned that I'd love to hear about a little bit is I asked how you pronounce your name, which in Farsi is Navid Mahdavian. And I asked how you pronounce it in English. And you mentioned that you actually used to pronounce your first name differently. Can you tell us about that and when that changed or what, what the story yeah, is? Yeah. So so I still say Navi Medavian, which I think is so much easier because in English, we don't have that like aspirated H with consonants. So like the Mahdavian, I had a coworker who used to call me Macdavian, which is like great. I, I like being Macdavian. Um, but my first name, I also used to go by Navid. Um, and it, that was a conscious decision I made when I was in my early 20s. So everybody who I grew up with still calls me Navid. But when I was starting graduate school, I was like, that's it. New group of people, new place, new identity. And I was like, I'm just going to I'm going to go by Navid. And the first person who I met, I said Navid. And I was like, OK, well, I guess another year of going by Navid. And so it's an interesting experience oh, having no. some. <laughs> So, so it's been it's been an interesting experience having some of the closest people to me in my life, the people who I grew up with, calling me Navid, and now the people who have known me since my early twenties calling me Navid. But I, that's also an experience that a lot of people who I grew up with, I think, did as well, where you you stress the second syllable, right? So Nasim becomes Nasim, and Sahar becomes Sahar, and yeah, it was it was definitely a conscious conscious decision to try to go by go by Navid and I have and I and I, and I haven't looked back <laughs> yeah it's such a slight difference but it me it makes such a yeah. big difference you're right yeah it's yeah and, and I and I've talked to him about this with with my daughter and my 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 comics her name is Elika and I knew that when I was having a child I wanted to give her an Iranian name and that you know that was important to me and there's the the same sort of experience where people are I they ask what her name is and I say Elika and they're like, oh, Erica. And I'm like, no, Elika. And I know that this is something that she's going to experience for the next, you know, however long of her life where she'll be correcting people. But that's, I, I think, a, a small price to pay to have something, you know, that connects you to this larger context and history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, having kids, I feel like there's something to be said for like looking a certain way and then having a name that reflects that in a way. It makes you feel a little bit more connected to that culture. Totally. Yeah. So I I was also wondering while I was reading the book, did your parents ever visit you in Idaho? They did. Yeah. Both my parents visited me. My my mom I think was a continual worry for her for for her for me being there. Um there definitely were protests when I was moving. She was concerned for my safety. And when she visited, I this is something that she expressed a lot was how unsafe she felt. But I, I think that I don't know how much of that was the actual experience of being there or just feeling like you're different. And there and there definitely are stairs, and stairs can feel uncomfortable. But again, is it because it's a small town or is it because, you know, you you look Middle Eastern? And my mom does, I think she can pass for white American. I think I think there was definitely some negotiation that she experienced being there between her preconceived notions of coming in and her experience of 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 being there. But I still think I also feel like I think that that does say, say something though. There there being a place where going into it you feel uncomfortable regardless of of how you're being treated just because literally everybody looks different than you. Right. And did you come away from the experience feeling like hopeful? Like, were you like, because 
it's a little unclear. Is it such that you're like, okay, when you make like one-on-one connections, all people are good? Or are you like, uh, this is pretty problematic? Yeah. I mean, I think there was definitely some problematic things. And when I was writing the book, the thing that I try to, the balance was that line to being true to being sympathetic to the people who, by and large, were very welcoming, were were great. But then there are things about the community that I wanted to critique. And there were the people who made being there an uncomfortable experience for me. And how much of that was not having met a Middle Eastern person before and me acting as that spokesperson for my culture, which I think, by and large, I was happy to do. Because I think that, overall... Spending three years forging these relationships with these people, I can't help but think that, at, you know, they came away with at least one, there's like at least that one Middle Easterner, you know, that one foreigner who's like, who's a good guy. And, and I feel like that has to do something. And there, there were conversations that I had with people where I would express this experience, my parents' experience of being immigrants, of having gotten, you know, graduate degrees. My sister and I have graduate degrees. We've done our part in making America the place that it is. And then people would respond, well, well, you're the exceptions. And it's like, well, why are we the exceptions? You know, that's, that's the rule. And there may be exceptions to, to, to us, right? Who is the, you know, the, the, the rule. And so I think that for some people, I don't know how, how much exposure there would have to be for the exception to become the rule. But I definitely do think that there was some cultural exchange that also went both ways. There were friends that I developed there in the book, like Josiah, you know, this six foot three cowboy who it was definitely a friendship of circumstance. You know, we don't we don't keep in contact now, but I still think very warmly of him. And particularly now with America being as divided as it is, like. Josiah is the, you know, the 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 example of a person who I can be friends with who I don't agree with politically, you know, who has a very different upbringing to mine, but who made me elk kebabs after he found out that kebabs are something that Iranians eat, you know? And that, like that's 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 the, the best cultural exchange, <laughs> you know, that there is. So, yeah, I I I think for the most part and I and I and I've had this conversation with with my mom, where my mom is like, no, these people are bad. And I think, well, you know, they haven't met a person of color. I remember when I was doing work with the the ADL, I did anti-bullying workshops in schools for a few years. And there was one statistic that stuck in my mind where I think it was like 75% of people who express anti-Semitic viewpoints have never met a Jewish person before. And I And I can't help but thinking that for many of the people who live in that part of rural Idaho, I was probably the first Middle Eastern American that they had ever they had ever made, ever met. And that has to to do something to your worldview. And I don't think it excuses it because there are many people who from places I who I've never met, who I'm not, you know, uh, I don't put up a wall, a uh, literal wall um, to and I don't have harbor, you know, biases or negative views about. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like being there for three years did at least make me somewhat sympathetic to to what that experience must must be like. Uh, you're not going to have a book release party in the actual town. <laughs> How's that going to uh, work? 
no, no, I, I, I'm not. I mean, some of the people who live in the town definitely will will read it, and I would be interested to know what the reception is for the people in the community because I think that again, I try, I did try to make a sympathetic portrait, but I'm also critical of certain aspects of the culture that I found problematic, and and I would hope that somebody who would read it would see what I'm trying to do is not to bash the place because again I have these very fond memories of the people and the place and that there would be some opportunity for for reflection but then again I left because I think that there was just a cultural divide that I wasn't able to to bridge and so I wonder if that would be the same in their experience of reading the book where it would just be like well no that's not you know my experience of of the place and this is my culture and so no 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 book release party there planned yet one question that i had that was probably not applicable to the podcast but i'm wondering what your ideas are you mentioned marfa in there uh, have you been to marfa i i haven't been to marfa but i think that when we were were yeah and it, that, that comes up in the section about the movie theater reopening this art house movie theater in town and that I, right. I think on the on the, was a low key plan of ours was to to try to create this cultural hub that would attract artists from around the world, which would have just confirmed all the suspicions that the townsfolk had had of had of us. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's funny. Like, I wonder what the difference is between like Marfa and like a town in Idaho or Texas and like Idaho, because I feel like like growing up in Texas. And maybe Texas is like Miami or something where it's very diverse, but people even in small towns here, I feel are are very welcoming of like others. And I think it's maybe the Texas like live and let live mentality that that kind of lends itself to that. Yeah. But uh, but I do think you should have a book release party in Marfa. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. I mean, if you know anybody in Marfa who wants to have me, I would love to love to come. Oh, yeah. Okay. well, (laughs) we'll make it happen. Oh, actually, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, it mentions that there's some uh, experience with you went to Sundance because your wife is a filmmaker. Is that right? Yeah. And you went to Sundance during that three years. And there was some uh, teaser of that being an interesting experience amidst this uh, year or three years in Idaho. So what what's the story with that? Yeah, that was 2019. One of those experiences that didn't make it into the into the book. It was an interesting process of figuring out what would make it into the book. Because initially I wrote down all of the things that happened within this three years. And I think that if anybody were to write down everything interesting that happened within three years, there'd probably be enough to fill fill a book. But going to Sundance was one of the more interesting experiences that did not make it into the book. But my, my wife, Emily, while we were there, made a film called Midnight Traveler with this Afghan director, Hassan Fazali. And it's about the their his family's journey of going through the refugee, the migrant route, the the Balkan route into Europe. The Taliban had a price on his head, and so the film documents. It was all shot on smartphones, and she produced, wrote, and edited the film. And we got to go to Sundance for the for the release, which was definitely a very it was it was it was an interesting contrast of going from Mackie, Idaho to. To Sundance, which is very cosmopolitan, very ritzy. And funny enough, before going to Sundance, our line going out of the house froze because winters in Idaho are brutal. It'll get down to negative 37 degrees. And so the night before we're supposed to go to Sundance, 
I had to borrow a like a, a like a flamethrower from my neighbor, and I'm like flamethrowing my front yard trying to thaw the pipes that have have frozen over, and then got those unfrozen and got in the car and went to Sundance. And it was just like a culture shock of going from this small town to like this. Yeah, it was definitely it. And it was in 2019. I think that there was something fitting with going to Sundance in January of 2019. And then in that year, deciding that maybe it's time to to leave rural Idaho for something that, you know, for a bigger city. And also, if the goal of going to Idaho was to begin these art careers, me being a New York cartoonist, her in film me getting into the New Yorker and then her getting into Sundance, it felt like, well, maybe we can tie a little bow on our experience, like mission accomplished. And now we can move on to, you know, back to the city. Yeah. So then when you got back to the city, what was the what was the timing of the pandemic? Were you <laughs> were you then just isolated in your house for the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, it was it was October 2019. Also, probably a similar experience. A lot of people moved to Salt Lake City and then the lockdown happened. I think it was five months later. So we were just getting our, our bearings, had a two month old at the time. And then the lockdown happened. So I think it's still been like a, we've been there now for four years. And I still and I still feel like I'm discovering Salt Lake City because for the first two or so years, you couldn't really go anywhere. Oh, my gosh. So you had like one kind of quarantine and then like <laughs> yeah. shifted into another one. So anyway, part two of the book is coming out. Part yeah. two of quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I wonder how much of that experience where people were complaining about being stuck in a in a house for the pandemic. What exactly? It's like, well, I did that for for three years, a 280 square foot house. Good good preparation for the pandemic. <laughs> Amazing. Well, is there anything else that you haven't covered? Like I said, I recommend everyone to get the book, to read it. It's a lot of fun to read. Uh, you'll go and, you know, it puts you in this completely different place, which I love an experience that a lot of us haven't had uh, of the snow and the gardening and the, the people. So I recommend everyone to read it. But is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about, especially in relation to this whole identity? No, I mean, I think we we covered a lot. I mean, I think that the one of the nice things about being an artist is getting it's that continual process of sort of digging inwards to draw stories out. And yeah, I mean, I, I encourage everybody, you know, even if you're you're not a cartoonist or a comic uh, writer or a writer to just sort of dig a little in there. And I'm sure you'll find things that help to, you'll learn new things about yourself. So, Absolutely. And we'll link to the book in the show notes for this. And we'll also link to that New Yorker Persia cartoon that you did that was fantastic. And so we'll have all that on the show notes. Yeah. And I will be on on tour with with my book for, for a couple of months. So I'll be traveling around the US and, and just Toronto and Canada. So if I'm coming to your city, please, please come. <laughs> yeah. Where do we people find out more about you and about that tour? Yeah. I mean, mostly, I, I think like lots of artists, I'm on mostly on Instagram. So it's Navid M is my, uh, my, my, my handle on there. And there you can find my, my cartoons, links to my comics and then my, my tour date. Okay. And we'll link to that on the show notes as well, but it's N-A-V-I-E-D-M on Instagram. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. Well, Navi John, thank you so much for talking with me. Despite our technical <laughs> difficulties, we'll get this edited <laughs> nicely so that people can can hear it. And uh, good luck with the book. I think it's going to do fantastic. I'm super excited for people to read it. 
Yeah. Thank you for, for having me on. This has been really nice. Thank you so much for listening to the interview. And if you, like Navid's wife, Emily, are interested in Persian poetry, we have a whole course where we teach you famous poems, no matter what level of Persian speaker you are, even complete beginners. You can find that and all of our Persian language resources on our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. And that's it for this week. I'm your host, Leila Shams, and until next time, Hoda Hafez. Hafiz.